This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Judge Frances Evers has just finished her stint as Aotearoa New Zealand's Chief Children's Commissioner. Judge Frances has been in charge of Manamok Puna, the Children and Young People's Commission. She finished up her role last week and returns to the bench as a youth court judge. Before this Chief Children's Commissioner role, she was a judge in the District Court in Manuko, South Auckland. Judge Francis worked extensively with children in the court system. She's also a lawyer, mainly in the family, youth and criminal courts, including as a lawyer for children and as a youth advocate. Judge Francis recently visited Darwin and relates the challenges facing First Nations children here with the experiences of her people in Aotearoa. Judge Francis Evers, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you. Now, I often start by asking our guests where they grew up and what shaped their worldview and their sense of social justice. As you know, it's a very First Nations thing to get yes. our sense of relationship to everyone else. So I'm going to ask you the same question about where you grew up and what really shaped your worldview and your interest in justice and, and law. Well, I grew up in a, a small um, town in the eastern Bay of Plenty, so not far from Rotorua, which some of your listeners may be familiar with, where we've got the geysers and the boiling mud pools, um, but uh, near the coast in a little town called Teteko, and uh, on a farm, the eldest of six children, my dad was Pākehā of Irish stock, hence the name Evers, and my mum was Māori, and she came from across the other side of the coast, uh, west coast, uh, near Kafia Tiawamutu, um, so through Mamuia, Waikato and Maniapoto. And I guess you know, my mum was a teacher, dad was a farmer, they worked very hard. Mum and dad both had a strong sense of social justice and uh, worked hard in the communities and you know, work to try and make a difference for people, uh, to make things their lives better. We, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and you can imagine, you know, six children in a time when everyone had one car, and you know, it was, it was a great celebration when we got a TV and things like that. But we always had, we lived off the land, and my father also went hunting. We always had plenty of food or kai, as we call it here. And mum was uh, from a family of ten, and she was one of the older ones, so you know, we often had her siblings um, and her cousins around us, particularly in holiday time. Mum always made us very proud, let us know, and made us aware that we were Māori as well as Pākehā, and it was something that she was not ashamed of, and she spoke up loudly about in a time when, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was not something people were particularly proud to always say. But, you know, Mum grew up in that time without her language and without really being completely immersed in her culture, but uh, looking back... Uh, she actually knew more than she probably thought she did. So long story, uh, but you grew up. My father um, was born there. He died in the house he was born in. So we had a very stable, loving upbringing on a farm um, in a community where everyone knew one another and, and knowing who we were. Sounds great. I think there will be a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are listening who will really relate to that idea of lots of kids, maybe not a lot of money, but a lot of love and a, yes. you know, a, a big sense of community and, and parents who didn't have very much but set the stage for their children to do so much more. So what led you or how did you get into law? I'm imagining there weren't another, a lot of people around you who were judges no, no, and, and, no. and I guess as part of that um, the focus on children and young people. I didn't want to be a lawyer particularly I, and again I, I put it in the context of living on a farm quite isolated you know TV went from my what, 
five o'clock at night till ten o'clock in those days. Uh, we didn't have cell phones like we have now, so we were very much immersed in our own community. When I was at high school, the local high school, uh, I remember one teacher saying to me, you should go to university, and I laughed at him and said, I'm not clever enough, because, you know, no one <laughs> in our family had ever gone to university. It wasn't even really thought about, but mum was a teacher, and she qualified as a teacher at a time when it was sort of unusual, and particularly given that she'd come from a family where, you know, a large family. But Mama had always said to me, you know, um, make sure, you know, you're, you've got a good set of brains, um, make sure you use them, don't just stay in the community, make sure you, you get out and, and, you know, I guess be the best you can be, whatever that is. And Dad himself was denied an education, so he had to finish school at 12 to help on the farm end of World War Two. So he was very keen to make sure that we all had an education. So it started with me going off to teacher's college, just like my mum, and then getting to teacher's college and thinking, actually, I, I don't really want to do this. I don't think I'm creative enough. I think teachers are amazing and their creativity and their ability to connect with um, children and open their minds to learning is, is something that I felt I didn't have. I just decided to have a go at, at university. I was persuaded, actually, by one of my flatmates boyfriends over the dinner table one night and I thought yes I'll give that a go and absolutely loved university it was like my brain burst um it was wonderful that sort of learning I guess that I was exposed to I was I guess introduced to people who were studying law and it just seemed exciting and interesting and I thought I guess at that stage I was a selfish teenager who just wanted to was curious about how the world worked and um, that was a new and interesting world for me and once I qualified in law I was always was always my intention to go back to my home area and help our people that I knew even then um, we're well overrepresented in the criminal justice system, and just you know, I, you know, even then, I guess Maori were pretty much regarded as second class citizens, and I wanted to try. I wouldn't dare think that I could, but I, I was wanted to try to help make a difference. So that's how I ended up doing law. I also think if there are First Nations lawyers listening here, the desire to do this kind of study because of our personal understanding of how the law has affected our families and then that real desire to want to work in this quite difficult space because of the good we hope will do our communities will really resonate. We we cover criminal justice, juvenile justice and child protection issues quite a lot on this show because they are real touch points in our community that continue to be places where the, the law and the lives of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here intersect. But people listening here in Australia are probably not quite so familiar with with what the systems are like in New Zealand. I wonder if you could just give us a quick snapshot of both the child protection system and the uh, criminal justice system in New Zealand from your perspective. I guess, you know, what little I know about just some of the reading I've done, you know, we were settled, uh, colonised by the British as well. So I, I think the systems that have come across are fairly similar. As Children's Commissioner, uh, you know, the focus was quite strongly on exactly those two things apart from others it sort of tended to go there because the the fact of children we call we call our children here mokopuna it's a maori word moko means markings or tattoo so a tattoo or a, and then puna is a spring so it's the reflection of you yourself your tattoo in a spring which then goes back to, as a reference deep 
to, to your ancestors and where you've come from. And mokopuna is uh, a talk. So I, I will probably use that word a fair bit, but I'm meaning children, young people and children across the board. In fact, we are all mokopuna, but just particularly in this context of children and young people. So our care and protection system is one where we have a state entity, uh, Oranga Tamariki, which is the name of that entity, and children go into care the emphasis is in the law is that as much as possible they stay within their families or whanau and are supported but often they do end up in institutions because families are unable to look after them. That is a system where mokopuna or children end up in the care and protection system for I would say looking at sort of your act report for example it's the same reasons as um or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children do because there's trauma in their background, in their lives, which is now intergenerational. Um, and there are a number of issues where families are dispossessed, uh, where there are inequities in the system, barriers that they've faced, whether they're barriers of racism or otherwise. But largely from a Māori point of view, They've come about through colonisation and that's probably uh, a fact that people find hard to accept and understand. But it's it's true because, you know, Māori have had their language taken away, lands taken away. We had a treaty um, that was signed in 1840, but it's been a matter of dispute ever since. So just getting back to what I was talking about is that the, we have a care and protection system where our children are put into ca- the care of the state and... That process is long and slow. That often uh, has issues for children, and that they're so they are so far away from their families that it's hard for them to get back into their families. And often their families are not ready to have them back, and that in itself causes issues. And often children will tell us when we hear children's voices, as we've done our work around the country, the biggest theme that comes across. If you if you help our families, you help us. Or you fix our families, you fix us. Our families need support and then we will be okay. And and that's something that we've been pushing for um, in our work. On the youth justice uh, system, um, that is a system which is really, in my view, outmoded. We, we have a fairly good system through when, when Mokopuna go through the youth court that's designed to try and avoid uh, children being, I guess, sucked into the, the, the criminal pipeline. Um, there is a plan put in place. We try to put children with their family. We try and help them get back on a road where they feel <coughs> that they don't need to offend or are not put in situations where they will offend. And that is done through various ways in the youth court, often through collaboration with police social workers, uh, lawyers, other government agencies such as health, particularly mental health, non-government agencies and also uh, Oranga Tamariki, the state care. So there's there's quite a large collaboration there to try and keep children out of court. The other system we have is that we, uh, one of our judges or a group of our judges led an approach to have court sittings for youth at the marae, which is a, a place where our tribes meet. So the hearing is there within this uh, tipuna whare, which is our house where our descendants, our ancestors, are. we feel that our ancestors are within our house. The house is like our, the house is our ancestor, and so we are hoping that by taking our children out of the court, the cold, sort of 
um, institutional court into a community-based marae setting that that's going to help them and their families um, keep out of the court process. We do the same with our Pacific children. We, if they're in the court system, they have the option to meet with elders of the Pacific and, again, talk about ways to help them and their family and keep them out of the system. So that's a, a step in the right direction Unfortunately, though, uh, once children, uh, young and young people, get into the youth detention facilities, um, it's very much a, a pipeline to prison, quite frankly. And one thing that um, I firmly believe in and that we have advocated for strongly uh, with a, as Children's Commissioner was for phased closure of care and protection and youth justice centres, which are often in places far away from where these children live and far away from their families, have a model that is community-based, family-like, so, you know, three or four children in a family home-type environment, close to their own communities, designed by their own communities and their own families and their tribes, and, and with collaboration, so you have health involved, you have education involved. Everybody creates a, a plan and a, a rehabilitative program that suits that particular child. I like to say one child at a time and their family. Let's help one child at a time and their family and their specific and unique needs. There's so much in what you've said there that will have a real resonance for um, First Nations uh, families but also people working in this space here and particularly the focus on the role of improving uh, early intervention with families to deal with underlying issues, the greater role that communities and elders can play in these processes. One issue that we struggle with here, and I'd love to see if you've got any insights on this, is that interconnection or the interrelationship between children here who go into out-of-home care and the much higher risk they'll find um, themselves having contact with the criminal justice system and then unfortunately find themselves in juvenile justice facilities. And I wonder if you see the same connection or that intersection between those two systems uh, in your work, and if so, if you've got any insights on how they can best that that uh, pipeline, that unfortunate pipeline, can be addressed. Oh, the the connections there absolutely in the same way. Uh, when I was in Darwin recently at the um, conference, the Snake Conference, um, and listened to the various speakers, uh, I, I was wouldn't say I was surprised, but even though different contexts, different people. Indigenous people, though, colonised by the same, by the British, the issues are the same in terms of how uh, there are these inequities. These inequities exist today. So there's a direct correlation. Many studies show this from academics, from, from those in the field uh, that show that, you know, the unless we address the cause of the offending or the cause of the reason why a family breaks down and unless we put supports in place, it's going to continue and it will get worse. So there is a direct correlation between that, you know, a family, uh, a child being placed into state care and then a child's, I guess, dislocation from their family um, and then that sort of influence that they get from if, if they come into a youth detention centre or youth justice, as we call it here. Even when I was a lawyer for child representing um, children in state care, they all wanted to go home. You know, nobody's family is perfect. And what I've heard as Children's Commissioner and in the reports that were, were done even before I became um, Children's Commissioner, all mokopuna, all children young people say, you just needed to help our family 
and support our family, not take me away from my family. And, and you know, within the, the Māori context, and I'm sure it's the same within, you know, First Nations people of Australia, our family doesn't stop at the nuclear. <laughs> the nuclear family is very wide. It goes right across to the, the canoe. So we're very, we're all connected and related in some way, and it's about finding family that can help care for that child so that they stay within their their group and they can identify, they can feel proud of who they are, they can be supported and loved by their own family and feel that, that they are worth something. They, they maintain their mana, as we call it here, their dignity, their own dignity, and that's what we need to aim for. Yes, there is a lot of resonance. Uh, we call it cousins by the dozens here, that large extended family. <laughs> yeah, we call them cousin bros. <laughs> There's something else that you mentioned that um, I'd love to, to uh, get your thoughts and reflections on, and, and that is your advocacy around th- the way in which we should be moving to close juvenile detention facilities. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the things you must have seen or experienced that draw you to that conclusion. And I guess one of the things that we find really frustrating here in Australia is the advocacy around wanting to move to some of the very effective directions that you have been highlighting around uh, dealing with underlying issues, supporting families, dealing with children on a one-on-one basis in a much more humane, individualised way gets sidetracked by the way that youth crime is characterised or focused on, the narrative that appears around it in the media, particularly when there is a a narrative within the media that young uh, First Nations Aboriginal children are running amok in Alice Springs or in in rural Queensland and this tough-on-crime response that comes with that. Just wondering what your thoughts are in this space and how should we be dealing with children who are committing offences where people would say, well, you know, they've done the wrong thing so they need to be punished. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, it, I suppose I start with, you know, a child or a young person as a child and a young person and we need to remember that. I, I very firmly believe and it's supported by the evidence and by academics and the literature that's out there that we need to look at why this young person has offended. They do usually come from state care or from a family where perhaps there's no father, mum's struggling. They're usually all um, living in some sort of poverty. A common feature, a very common feature, is that they've not been at school since they're probably 10 or 12. They've been excluded from school. And they're smart, of course, um, but they just have not had an education. Another common feature is that many of them come from homes where there's been high domestic violence or sexual violence or you know, emotional violence or a combination of all. These are all aspects that, that contribute to a young person ending up committing these crimes or, as you say, you know, running amok and then it gets reported in the media. I would love to be able to have an education campaign out there to say to people, hey, you know, how, how would you be? What would... You know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Would, would you be? Would you be like that? Perhaps if you were brought up in that way, if that was what life had dealt you, if you didn't have anything, and you were, you know, I mean, I have three sons, right? And when I was a judge in the court, and say a little fourteen or fifteen-year-old would come up before me, one of them represented my son, who was that age at that time. But that um, young boy in front of me had been wandering around the streets of Manudewa or South Auckland till four in the morning intoxicated 
Now, that would never happen to my son. And, and this is the difference, you see. It's the resource that I have. I guess the upbringing I have. I have a direction in life. That's not to judge where that young person's come from. That's not to judge their family. But it is to know that they need, they need to be helped and supported so that they can live a life with dignity and respect and not, put the, not have themselves in that position. The punishment aspect I know is it's the same it's it's driven here and I can understand why people say that but we have uh, something over here called family group conferences so when young people are in the youth court if they admit the offending it then goes to a family group conference and the the victim of the offending attends that conference or is able to attend that conference now the young person sits there across the table from that person and they talk about it and they can see that this is a real person with a family and you know just struggling to to make their own ends meet and it's not fair on them that this has happened to them and the young person will you know can see that they're real and it's not just a sort of a they do appreciate i suppose that what they've done is wrong and that the victim for want of a better word will nine times out of 10 um forgive that young person and say hey i just want you to live a good life i know that you're you're better than this. This is not you. And you know the the the, the grace of those victims uh, often astounds me. But I suppose what I'm what I'm really trying to say is that we need to look at. I keep coming back. We need to look at why these young people offend. We need to put our resource into that. I mean, in New Zealand here, we've just had the Ministry of Justice statistics released, and there has been a 15% spike in offending. Um, over the last year, but it's still not as high as it was in 2018. You know, these young people have had to go live through COVID. That's impacted on a lot of families who were not that well off beforehand. They're even worse well off. We've got a high cost of living. Many of these young people weren't in education. That's just been, you know, made worse by the fact that they're now not back in education. Um, They've been sort of lost in the system. We've got a lot of catching up to do. COVID's made, the impact of COVID, that pandemic has made it harder. But Again, we're we're talking about a relatively, in New Zealand anyway, small cohort of um, young people, around about 200. So again, you know, come back to, you know, one child at a time, dealing with what's going to help make them and their family choose a life that's not going to steer them towards prison and poverty, and that's going to give them the opportunity to live the best that life they can. There are many initiatives now, and in fact I went to visit a group uh, just last week where it was a collaboration of agencies, including the police, Oranga Tamariki, our state care system, um, health, uh, non-government organisations, with a real emphasis on putting intensive support around these um, children who offend. They meet every day, they talk through the cases, they build relationships with these families, and they help them through their, their troubles, and it's working. It's working, but it's intensive and it requires uh, commitment and it requires understanding what the drivers are of that behaviour and making it, making the change, helping them make the change so that it's long term. I was just going to ask you um, what your reflections are in the time that you've been working in the legal system, uh, what you have seen, because we've obviously talked about some of the continuing the continuing issues, the sort of systemic issues, the interrelatedness of the juvenile justice child protection system, which is a structural issue as well. But from the time you've been there, what have been some of the things that you've seen that have changed for the better? Well, I believe that this initiative in the youth court of having community-based 
um, sittings for young people, um, which are at the marae. And although it's a, a Māori kaupapa or, you know, around sort of Māori principles and values and anyone can go to that, anyone can go to it. And, and many young people who are not Māori take that option and really get great benefit from it. So it's what's lovely about that is the family feel comfortable to go there. You get you can bring as many family as you like to that court sitting. And it's just a essentially it's a discussion. You sit around the room and talk about it and talk about what's working and what's not working. And the idea is to make that young pe- person feel good about themselves. And it's the same in the in the Pacific context. So so that's that's one aspect. I would say the other aspect is presently uh, under our court system, the legal system, our our chief judge is building what he calls Te Ao Marama, so it's a Māori principle, sort of coming from the dark and into the light. Uh, you know, because in, in New Zealand here, I mean, I, I can't remember the statistics, but it's over 60% of those appearing in court, in the criminal court, are Māori. Something like 65% of the children in state care are Māori. Um, 65% percent of the women in prison are Māori. So it makes sense, therefore, to build a system of addressing uh, matters of justice that work to sort of to work to Māori principles because if we can reduce those numbers and have people not appear in court, that's a good thing. But if they are going to have to be in court, um, that's still another opportunity, a late one. <laughs> But still another opportunity to turn people's lives around and to give them support and to make them see that this is not just about punishment and accountability. It should be There should be a strong emphasis on rehabilitation. I'd like to see that more so. I think it's going to be a, a, a long time turning that around. I mean, the legal system is still very much what we brought across from. England all those years ago and it's it's going you know we we're slowly working around it and there are sort of evolving to the way we work in New Zealand but we still have a, a real emphasis on punishment here I haven't really seen that change a lot the other question just finally that we often ask people on the show especially when they're doing the kind of work that you do where you um, see very difficult cases, it's a very human thing to work in, it does take its toll. How do you stay strong? How do you look after your well-being? And what advice do you have for others on how they can best take care of themselves? I've thought about that one a lot, actually. But um, it's, I guess when I first became a lawyer, people used to say to me, how can you be a lawyer? Like, how can you act for a criminal? And they used to say that to me at parties. And as a young lawyer, I, I suppose I just... I just say to them, well, if, if I read where these people have come from, I've read the the report that that tells me how their life has tracked and led them to this point. And I do say, if I'd been, if my life as a young person um, had been like that, would I be any different? I guess you know, I start with the premise that I came from a loving, caring family, and I was always strong in my identity. So that's the first thing. The second, the second thing is when I started to do family law. Um, everyone used to say, "Oh, you're you're really soft. You'll you want to bring all the children home." And and you know, to a large degree, um, I do. But I work really hard when I'm in that space to try and do the best I can for each and every single one of the people I've ever represented. It represented, and then you know, as a judge, um, the same thing again. I have tried to be me and just talk to people directly, and you do get. Good 
results. I mean, I've not given someone bail. I mean, sometimes they turn around and tell me where to go in very sort of colourful language. Other, and I just laugh and I don't really get offended by it. <laughs> and at other times, um, the, you know, I've, um, because I've talked to them, I've pronounced their name properly um, and I've explained what the process is, they'll just go, oh, okay, that's fine. Thank you, miss. Or in the youth court, which is, you know, I have to unashamedly say, is my favourite court, a young one would be, I'd give them bail on a Friday and I'd say, now make sure you stay home and make sure you don't mix, mix with your mischief mates and, you know, I want to see you back here in two weeks and we'll see how you're doing. And then on the Monday they walk in through the custody door and they have been hanging out with their mischief mates and they've been rearrested again. But, you know, they're young and they're amazing and, and they look at you and they recognise you and they'll say, uh, a big smile will come across your face, even though they've been sitting in a police cell for the last, you know, two days or something. And then they'll they'll say, "Oh, killed a miss," um, and I just look at them and go, "Don't you miss me? How you know? What are you doing walking through that door? We have this little banter. Um, I guess mother of three sons, you know, I'm I'm used to the sort of the way boys relate. They're much easier than than girls. But I guess I I've really enjoyed that work. I've enjoyed, uh, even though I know that. There's just a wee speck of sand of a difference that I'm making. I'm hoping that it's making some difference. And and I go home and I've got my own family to look after. So as a, as a mother of three young sons and, and, a, and my husband worked away a lot in IT, uh, you know, I had to go home and I, I had to actually park what I've been doing during the day because my sons needed food, they needed their washing done, they needed help with their homework, <laughs> I needed to sweep my floor. And I'm essentially a country girl, so I love getting out and, you know, um, floating in the sea, going for walks, spending time with friends and whānau. So it's important to look after yourself, and there's times that I haven't. I've let my work take over me, both as a lawyer and as a judge, and then I've had to check myself because it's my family, my own children, that have reminded me that I need to be there for them. And I guess that's been quite central for me. I remember as a, I'll just finish with this really, as a, as a lawyer working really hard, running my own firm, um, and working quite late in this particular day, uh, the nanny would pick the, our nanny would pick the boys up um, from from my office at five because they'd come there after school. I think my little one was still at daycare then, and then we'd go home. She'd go home and cook, and then I'd be home just as they were going to bed. This particular day, she couldn't be there, so I went home with them. And my eldest son at the time, who was about ten, was sitting around the table having dinner, and he just looked up at me and he said, "Oh, mum." It's so lovely having you home, having dinner with us. Honestly, you could have driven a stake through my heart. I had to do everything to stop the tears. And then I thought, what am I doing? I mean, actually, my own children have to come first. I want to be the best I can be, but my own children have to come first. And I guess that's what's protected me to a large degree. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And actually, thank you so much for sharing some of your very valuable, precious time with us on Speaking Out. It's been so wonderful to hear your insights and to give us a that perspective that will help our own thinking and understanding um, how we can address similar issues here in Australia. So, Judge, thank you so much for spending time with us on Speaking Out. Um, you know, great thanks to um, you. And I just want to acknowledge, uh, you know, the Aboriginal people of Australia. I, um, I think it's a beautiful culture. And I heard someone at the conference that I was at um, in Darwin say that um, the Australian Aboriginal culture is a gift to Australians and I want to endorse that because it is. It's, it's amazing and it's beautiful and um, wish you all the best. Thank you so much. 
That's Judge Frances Evers, Aotearoa, New Zealand's outgoing Chief Children's Commissioner. She's returning to the bench as a youth court judge where she works hard to connect with the young people she's judging.